Hello, welcome to this week's Josie and Robin Book Shambles. A slight change today because we're going to play you the first episode of Taking the Universe Around the World, which has lots of book stuff in it and also bonus footage from the non-Patreon version as well. And uh, we are going to be back very soon. Daniel Sloss, I just interviewed him this morning. He's going to be on very soon. Josie is going to be coming back to uh, Book Shambles, which I'm over the moon about, and we've also got more stuff from Helen Chersky as well. But we just thought you could listen to this. This is the, the first part of a series which is probably going to be at least 40 episodes. It's going to go on as long as the Horizons tour that I do with Brian Cox, and that's over uh, 100 different gigs. So I hope you enjoy this. It's me going around lots of bookshops, occasionally dealing with the anxiety of going back on an international tour after all of the time of COVID and other things. Anyway... Hope you enjoy it, and we'll be back with the Book Shambles Book Shambles next week. Hello. Welcome to my Horizons Tour Diary 2022. I'm Robin Ince, and... I'm currently touring the show with Brian Cox Horizons uh, about the nature of black holes and how we can understand the universe through our comprehension of the activity of black holes and their existence uh, with some poetry, some jokes and uh, general ribaldry as well as uh, a lot of sometimes almost ridiculously beautiful visuals. And this is a diary that I've been keeping since just before the tour started. I just decided that I'd keep a diary because sometimes at the end of the day or at the beginning of the day, using words and putting them into a structure to create shape and form can just help us give us some, well, help give us some kind of pattern, really. And that's what I was after. I think anyone, in particular, I think if you have, uh, sometimes if you've got quite a few voices in your head, uh, it can be useful to corral those voices and put them on paper. It's something that I wrote about in I'm a Joke and So Are You. And in fact, I wish I'd written more about it because I think the act of creativity of any form, whether it's ultimately to go on public display or whether it's merely for yourself, can really help give you shape and really help you sometimes gain an understanding when there can seem to be uh, so many possibilities and so many uh, just curveballs of, of existence. So with so many curveballs of existence, with so many different possibilities and probabilities, just sitting, typing, shaping or painting or whatever it might be, then you have something that you can hold on to and something that you can look towards. And so that's why I wrote these diaries. I don't know why other people uh, write diaries it might be for those reasons it might merely be to remember that they uh, have to be in Lincoln on Tuesday at 8:30 p.m. for uh, a very important dinner meeting so I started off and it's interesting I'm, I'm just going back I'm currently in Montreal that's where you can uh, hear the fire engine that's making its way through the city but I started the diaries about two days beforehand and two days before the tour started for in the build-up to the tour for the kind of last three weeks I, I was getting extremely anxious about that and I suppose it was that in 2019 Brian and I traveled the world and uh, ending up in in Reykjavik in Iceland which was a fantastic place standing on a glacier and then in 2020 of course uh, as you all know uh, the world predominantly shut down in various shapes and form and so it seems interesting now in 2022 now it's opened up we're almost immediately back on the road and even though I'd, I'd done a tour of 100 bookshops in the UK 
going back onto this tour, my febrile anxiety imagination came up with many, many possibilities. And also I just started a prescription as well, which I hadn't realised at the time, before it made anything better, made uh, the fog thicker and thicker as well. So I'm starting off, this was a diary from two days before we arrived in New York. For some, an extreme sport is leaping into a canyon attached to a rubber rope or swimming with sharks. For others, it might just be opening the front door and going out into the world. I'm looking at my attic room for the last time for a while. This is where I've spent most of the last two years, though there were also some months where I lived at my father's house and there I slept in the room that I was born in. So I've only really been in familiar places for a long time now. I did spend a couple of months touring the independent bookshops of the UK, but even then, there were only rivers between home and me. Now, there'll be an ocean. The Horizons tour with Brian Cox is going to begin, and I'm carefully laying out trousers, socks, interdental brushes, Imodium, just in case, and books. Too many books for a suitcase. But of course, books. I'm trying to read a different book from each city that we go to. I've already chosen my books for New York. We go there twice, so I'm allowed at least two. The first there is Patti Smith's Just Kids, the beautiful story of youthful hope, love and imagination and discovering the universe that expands within the people that we love. I also have the very short book by E.B. White, Here is New York, an essay written for the New Yorker in the sweltering heat of the summer of 1948. For Washington, D.C., I've got George P. Pelicanos's Shame the Devil, Technically, it's eight pages longer than my 299-page maximum for each city book, but I'll give it a hell of a go. For Philadelphia, I've risked two books, which is the Thurber Carnival, which includes The Secret Life of Walter Mitty, that you, I'm sure, know, the Danny Kaye film, which also includes an appearance by Boris Karloff. And the fiddle is happy. <laughs> and Elaine Brown's A Taste of Power. A Black Woman's Story, which is her story of being the first female leader of the Black Panthers. For New Haven, I've got a recommendation from Neil Gaiman, which is Bernard Wolfe's Limbo. To give you some idea of that story, the back blurb says, In the aftermath of an atomic war, a new international movement of pacifism has arisen. Multitudes of young men have chosen to curb their aggressive instincts through voluntary amputation, disarmament, in its most literal sense. That, by the way, is about 110 pages over my maximum, so I don't know how far I'm going to get. The, the, the rule is I don't have to finish the book in the city that I'm in, but I do have to finish all of the books by the time we finish the tour, I think in Berlin, probably in late March. Anyway, after New Haven, it's just going to be a case of wandering into independent city bookshops, wherever they can be found, and being steered by the readers behind the tills there. I also thought that now might be the time to read a biography of David Foster Wallace and I could begin Infinite Jest again. I've begun it many times. It only ever stops just because of my terrible attention span and the fact that more often than not I've suddenly got another project which I have to very quickly research. But I've enjoyed the first hundred pages quite a few times now. The author, the, the biography in Every Love Story is a ghost story. Inside that you'll find the phrase the Howling Fantods. This was a favourite of Foster Wallace's mother. The Howling Fantod, a Fantod, is a deep fear or revulsion. 
It's a word I can empathise with now, having spent so much time surrounded by the familiar the thought of going on a world tour is daunting and has conjured up a great anxiety. In the last month, my senses for the quietness of my recent life have sharpened. The bird song and the blossom, the movement of the sky, the great fortune I have to be able to have access to peace, even as my inner monologue rambles on, the strange persistence of so many silent and silly thoughts. Returning to the touring world, to city after city, to the noise of cramped and frantic life all around us, the daily journeys to a new room and a new complimentary soap and new possibly threatening noises. I feel like the first passengers of automated steam travel, fretting that when I reach such speeds of life, I might disintegrate. Each morning, I wake disturbed, and try to have a conversation with my anxiety. But it was scoured in my brain a long time ago. It's an anxiety that's not open to listening to a rational mind. And, very probably, it's not even able to understand language at all. It growls with pointless paranoia, always ready to conjure up a new anxiety should you defeat its first choice of fear. The meanness of me sitting in a frontal lobe in its velvet coat and jodhpurs, arrogantly imagines it's in charge of the stable as the horses rear and gallop rabidly. It tells me, You are lucky. Imagine teenage you being told you would cross the world in a travelling show about supermassive black holes and holographic theories. You should be overjoyed. And one of me most definitely is. If I could just get the other ones to shut up then I'm really going places. But whatever happens, I'm going places. I've kept my anxiety concealed for most of my life, though obviously I haven't really. It comes out in moments of anger or unjustified silence towards loved ones. But I only really started to understand the perpetual hammer pounding after I wrote I'm a joke and so are you. I feel embarrassed to admit the persistent and unhelpful inner life. We live in a culture of keep calm and carry on. Maybe it's not embarrassment, maybe it's shame. It seems also impolite. It's not the done thing we conceal and conceal and conceal until it's grown into a crushing monster that can smash you. After much thought and worry, I did send an email to two of the people I'll be travelling with just to admit that my anxiety is peaking of late. It won't cure it, but maybe it will reduce just a bit of the internal pressure if I'm not hiding from it. I received a friendly email back reminding me that we'll be in Central Park on Wednesday night, punching each other in the sunlight, and possibly watched over by the Mad Hatter too. Here we go again. I survived the world in 2019. Time to go there one more time, and survive it again. Today, we leave for New York the start of the Horizons tour. On my way, I remembered back to the late 80s, to that day when I felt grown up. I felt grown up when I went with Heather and Carolyn to the Robert Mapplethorpe exhibition at the National Portrait Gallery. I should say, by the way, I'm never certain. I used to call him Robert Mapplethorpe, and then some people call him Robert Mapplethorpe, and uh, I am sorry for this scone, scone, Bowie 
Bowie uh, disaster so early in this particular diary entry. But um, I, what I can tell you is it's pronounced Mark Gatis, not Mark Gattis. So I hope that helps anyway. That exhibition, when was it? I think it was 1988, maybe 1989, and I was just about to leave being a teenager behind me. What was on the wall that day is now mixed up with the works that I've seen so many times in books and magazines. All those strong but incredibly fragile flowers, that kind of the oxymoron of those noble petals. And then the muscular men with impressive penises, captured like perfect specimens, pinned on the dark backdrop of his studio. In those frames, the only reality on display is their existence. On the flight to New York, I read of Mapplethorpe's death in Patti Smith's Just Kids. Lying on my hotel bed, listening to the dogs, drivers and machinery of the city, and it really is that, that noise, that steam, that kind of the the pulsating nature of new york it does feel like there is a huge ancient mythic creature that lives beneath and on its kind of horny back that out of that grows everything that you see all of that noise all of it is something that is born out of this 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 ancient pulsating steaming creature but anyway i was thinking about that and then I thought, I'll turn on the television. I always did that. When I used to get to New York, I'd always just turn on the television and go into uh, a different world. And now, of course, that world does not seem so different. The, the, the divide between our media is less and less between the UK and what we see when we're in the USA. The first thing I saw, though, was I went straight into one of those medical adverts that lists lengthily and methodically every possible distressed bowel movement, angry rash or aneurysm that this particular miracle cure may cure, may cause rather, as it attempts to cure your ill by killing you in another way. This one was a very cheery advert for something that will help people who are HIV positive. The beaming man at the end of this list of cankers and fevers looks as happy as any man advertising a new juice drink or a honeyed cough medicine. It's a long way from the image of HIV and AIDS that was brutally reported by the 1980s news media, desperate to turn a whole group of human beings into pariahs, filled with disdain. All of that demonisation that happened at the time that Mapplethorpe and so many others were dying. Only gays and IV drug users were being killed by AIDS. But now we know every one of us could be devastated by it. The fact is, over 50,000 men, women and children now carry the AIDS virus. That in three years, nearly 2,000 of us will be dead. That if not stopped... It could kill more Australians than World War II. But AIDS can be stopped and you can help stop it. If you have sex, have just one safe partner or always use condoms. Always. I haven't spent enough of my life listening to or reading Patty Smith. When I saw her uh, on before Nick Cave, 
at the uh, the gig he did at Victoria Park. It was uh, uh, just the, the incredible. I'd seen her perform a couple of times before, but that was the truly transitional moment in terms of realizing how much of my life I'd wasted not listening enough to uh, Patti Smith. And uh, and it is she is like I will often say, but it, she is one of those performers where it does feel like an incredible and beautiful act of shamanism. We cannot. It's interesting when, when reading about Mapplethorpe, who idolised Warhol when he and Patti Smith uh, were together, though she summarises her attitude to Andy Warhol as, I hate the soup and felt little for the can. She recalls Mapplethorpe explaining his artistic process. I stand naked when I draw. God holds my hand and we sing together. For reading Arthur Rambo at school, she was suspected of being a communist. And then they threatened me in the John, is how she summarises that particular relationship with the other pupils, wary of anyone who didn't write in English as their first language. Just Kids beautifully encapsulates two young people living on tin stew and day-old bread, not merely dreaming of where they were going to be one day, but knowing one day something would happen. And for them it did. There's a melancholy for all of us, remembering when we were young and we had all those dreams and possibilities before time carried us on and hardened our options and narrowed our paths. From what will I be to what have I become? Rose-tinted reflections that exclude all those days of trying to fashion yourself into something that you were not. I've also begun reading E.B. White's Here is New York, written in 1948. It's a miracle New York works at all. The whole thing is implausible. He believed that New York was peculiarly constructed to absorb anything at all and that no one should come to New York unless he is willing to be lucky. It was a pleasurable way to spend the flight and then the beginning of my day in Manhattan, walking through the New York of the late 1940s into the Chelsea Hotel of the late 1960s and then finally arriving in the actual 21st century. The journey to Lower Manhattan was slow enough to get a leisurely view of the site of the World's Fair and that vast cemetery just off the freeway that gives the dead a fine view of the Chrysler building. And all those wooden houses that excited me so much when I first saw New York when I was 19 years old. On that day I remember flying close to the illuminated Statue of Liberty as we came into land. I'm pretty certain it's actually a false memory, but I'm keeping it anyway. It's too late to change it. When we got to our friend James's house, we were excited to see American television for the first time actually in America. We turned on, and the first channel gave us Man About the House, the 1970s British sitcom, followed by a Doctor Who episode, Genesis of the Daleks. All inferior creatures are to be considered the enemy of the Daleks and destroyed. No, wait! Those men are scientists. They can help you. On this occasion, Brian and I ate some prepared kale and then walked to Battery Park to lengthen our internal organs that had become hunched by the flight. An early night, not long after dusk, and I, as any Edgar Allan Poe admirer is likely to do, slept fitfully, unsettled by the anxiety of a lengthy car journey to Washington DC the next day. 
Sadly, we're not using trains due to the worry that infection with COVID could lead us to a 10-day and full stay in the Comfort Inn in Columbus, Ohio. At 6am, I gave up trying to sleep and ate the corners of a flapjack to create an oat bed for sertraline. It's showtime. Our second day in Manhattan starts at 6.45am when we wander down to Q104 for Brian to be interviewed by Jim Kerr, who is the perfect New York DJ. He has an elegant rumble of a voice and a love of classic rock. He's been a DJ here for so long that when he began, it was just called rock. Brian and I marvel at the CD shelves and the realisation that there are far more albums by the band Heart than we realised. Jim guides us through the photographs on the wall, which includes Jimmy Page in a tank top that very much looks like it was stolen from Paul McCartney's rural knitwear range that he keeps on the Mullumkin Tire, and also signed photographs of Robert Plant. It's an elegant autograph, though difficult to work out how the shapes and curves make up his name. I presume that if I truly understood those swirls, they would be heavy with occult symbolism. I go into the studio with Brian, but I don't have a microphone. So I sit like Teller next to Penn and watch him admiringly as Jim and his co-host, Shelley Sunstein, ask smart questions about electrons in between Tom Petty records. I risk shouting out something at one point, but apart from that, I'm generally well behaved. That think. Uh, I know. You made things. that statement you made were a it's, collection of atoms that think. It's an astonishing thing. And, and and it took the best part of four billion years to get to that point on Earth. And that's a long time, even in physics terms, a third of the age of the universe. So I think we might be one of the very few places where that's happened. Huh. So not, not not microbes, but a, an actual civilization. Okay, since you brought up atoms, okay, I have a question for you. Jim has been a DJ long enough to have the confidence to take us back down to the lobby and onto the street in the six minutes he knows he has between Billy Joel and the traffic and travel. Back at the hotel, we eat omelettes and discuss Apollo 8, which is a very normal way of us spending breakfast, and then Brian goes off for another podcast interview with Barstool Sports. I put my New York books to the back of the case for now, and I move to George P. Pelicanos's Shame the Devil, which now is at the front of my reading list. This is my Washington, D.C. novel for my round-the-world reading tour. It's a novel that doesn't take long to be viscerally violent and visually striking, as I've been told. I only go a few pages in. I'm not in Washington yet, so I don't want to break the reading rules, whatever they are, because I've made them up myself. Plus, I'm not quite rested enough to deal with too much homicide. I repackage my complimentary soap, imagining that this scant action against wastefulness will somehow make up for the environmental cost of all this travelling. Each time I remove the soap from its increasingly flummoxed packaging, I'll think, yeah, you're a good guy really, doing a lot of great work for the environment. Now when I look at hotel complimentary soaps and balms, I'll always think of Gilbert Gottfried and his splendid frugality. A $3 million apartment in New York, but he went to gigs on the Megabus and had suitcases under his bed packed with small vessels of conditioner and complimentary razors. All of this I saw, by the way, in the 2017 documentary about him just titled Gilbert, which is an utterly beautiful piece of work about him, about his wife, Dana, and his children. He's a very sweet, rather shy person offstage. 
It's quite amazing to see him when he's not on. A lot of memories being here. My father, he used to get very angry about my brother. I dropped out of high school. I'm sure my father thought he's the loser of the group. The rest of the day is traveling. Natalie picks me up at the hotel at 11am and we sit in a car on 7th Avenue waiting for Brian to finish whatever baseball analogy he's using to explain the Big Bang on this particular sports podcast. He comes out with a bag of hooded tops for himself and a baseball cap for me to cover my bald head. I've been anxious about this lengthy car journey. I prefer the train, it feels less trapped. But because we're being careful to stay in this bubble... A long road journey it is, out of the Holland Tunnel and into New Jersey. I'm always enthralled by the industrial landscape over the river, as if all of these vats and chimney stacks are are keeping Manhattan alive, part of the other things that pump the blood into that mythical beast beneath the island. It's a world of Eloys and Morlocks. After that, the freeway is fringed with skinny, suffocated trees, the lot of they haven't made it out of winter for a few years now. Brian sits with his laptop and edits the end credits while I stare out of the window and juggle cultural references in my head as we pass malls and clapboard houses. Sometimes I see Edward Hopper, sometimes Cormac McCarthy, sometimes George A. Romero. I survive the journey without too much edginess, helped by the self-hypnotism of constantly staring at Gerda Bridges and also listening to David Deutsch's The Fabric of Reality. In Washington, D.C., we stretch with a walk to the White House and admire the enormity of the Treasury Building. How many copies of Ayn Rand's The Fountainhead are still found on desks there? We eat a rich meal, whose sauces will later strike me in the stomach. But, for now, we yet again discuss shamanism. This particular shamanism of art, not Patti Smith, but the choreography of Gwen Verdon and Bob Fosse. Tonight, it's our first show in North America since 2019. I try to refuse to wake up until 7am, but my body clock has other ideas and chimes loudly every couple of hours from 10pm to 6am. I decide to stare at the ceiling for another hour. G.K. Chesterton wrote that lying in bed would be perfect if only you had a coloured pencil that could reach the ceiling. I had failed to pack one of those. But I doodle on it anyway from a distance. And so incur no extra room cleaning charges as imagination leaves no stain, at least here. When my son was younger, we used to lie in bed and draw on the ceiling with our fingers and try to guess what we'd conjured out of the air. He was far better at guessing than me. Giraffes are easy, particle accelerators less so. Brian is in the room directly above me, so I listen out for the light footfall of the heavier sleeper. But I hear nothing. I continue reading Shame the Devil, set in the Washington neighbourhoods that I will not see today. George P. Palikarnos writes, But few talked about the real crime of this city. Not anymore. American children were undernourished, criminally undereducated and living in a viper's nest of drugs, violence and despair within a mile of the Capitol Dome. It should have been a national disgrace, but hunger and poverty had never been tabloid sexy. I remembered that I meant to read an artist manifesto every morning from Why Are We Artists? 100 World Art Manifestos. Today, I decided on the Manifesto of the Storm Society, a group of Chinese artists from the 1930s. 
The air that surrounds us is too still as mediocrity and vulgarity continue to envelop us. Morons surround us and countless shallow minds are crying out. It is a call to rise up and create a world of colour, line and form. Today's families are loud in hotel corridors. Everyone seems to be talking over a non-existent helicopter landing. Having battled a dull headache that can come with too much recirculated air, Brian rises up at 11.30am. We walk the straight, jogger-heavy streets, looking for a light lunch rather than an angry fix. I order a salad, and Brian orders tacos and charred sprouts. I risk eating a couple of the charred sprouts, but go no further, knowing we have a few hours in a confined space the next morning. I have my one coffee of the day, which is my current rule, on top of almost teetotalism that disintegrates only when Brian looks lonely as he drinks champagne. Throughout the day, I keep replaying the poem I've written for this tour in my head, fearful that jet lag may make me stumble over the words or the rhythm. It's near the close of the show, and now synced to images behind me, so there's no get-out-of-jail card available if I cock it up. The theatre is beautiful, with the sort of chandelier ready to impale a phantom decorously and fatally. It's three weeks since we last performed a version of the Horizon show. Brian twiddles with details, and I make notes with hotel pen on hotel paper, but my wife has insisted that I do not take every pen that I see on this tour as I did in 2019. Too many pens, too many pens, but none that could reach the ceiling. The audience are lovely and whoop joyously at the mention of the infinite monkey cage. This is good, as my existence in the show is very much a kind of low footnote for the USA leg, so people can be surprised when an old bearded man wanders on and spoils the view of the sartorially pleasing physicist. It's a good first show, only slightly marred by Brian lacking his industrial strength laser pointer, which apparently is too powerful to sneak through customs. America seems happier with laser-sighted rifles for deer slaughter than laser pointers for cosmological education. Mason in the audience is celebrating his 15th birthday and we wish him a happy day and his father tweets to suggest that we could all sing him happy birthday but as far as I know science audiences can be reticent when it comes to public displays of rhythm so a round of applause must do. Back in the dressing room we have a fine cheese board but I skip the dairy fearing camembert caused colonic spasms on tomorrow's car journey to Philadelphia possibly accentuated by sprout action. Today, we travel to Philadelphia. Some days are harder to write about than others when perpetually on the road. Ate some yoghurt, got in a car, stood backstage, wrote about the day before, did a show. That was roughly this Saturday. Brian began his day with crab cakes in a rich sauce with two poached eggs and a side of berries. I'm more careful, as I've mentioned before, before long car journeys, due to my anxiety that I'll suddenly have to leap out of the car and squat in swamplands while truckers blow their horns and snakes flee in disgust. This has never happened to me in 30 years. But that doesn't prevent that febrile anxiety imagination running through a multitude of shameful roadside narratives. Today's World Art Manifesto to inspire is the Kinetic Manifesto from the Soviet Union by Lev Nussberg. Engineer, what have you done for beauty? Artist, how are you perfecting the instrument of art? World, 
To you we offer an art of soul, mind and body. My attempt to use the same complimentary soap from hotel room to hotel room has been dashed already by the box being thrown away during a room clean. So this hollow gesture is shattered by my decision not to put this clammy tablet loose into my rucksack, which will, of course, eventually fragrantly slime my books. Today, we're driving from Washington, D.C. to Philadelphia. Brian uses his time to alter his illustrations of Penrose diagrams. He also explains enlightening cosmological issues of quantum entanglement to me. Then I listen to the talking book version of David Foster Wallace's Infinite Jest. We drive by Baltimore, a city I've sadly never been able to stop at beyond changing buses at the station in 1988. It is embedded in my cultural memory due to my teenage obsession with John Waters and also my love of the cop drama Homicide, as well as the work of Barry Levinson. I'm sure the docks are greatly changed from Edie Massey's time, but I fondly remember her version of Big Girls Don't Cry being played on the John Peel show, and John Peel saying, I think really the Channel 4 should probably uh, do a series of uh, John Waters films, such as uh, Pink Flamingos and Desperate Living. And at that point, that was the kind of bold thing that Channel 4 might have done. Let you know you'll never keep this big girl down. It also reminds me of a story about Divine, undoubtedly my favourite of Stock Aitken and Waterman's 1980s roster of stars. Divine played a gig in Egham and fell through the stage, was then trapped in the floorboards of the stage, sunk into it up to her midriff, but nevertheless, Divine just kept singing. Proper floorboard trapped chutzpah one of my favorite lines from a film of all time remains the end of pink flamingos where divine delivers her manifesto which includes kill everyone now could you give us some of your political beliefs kill everyone now condone first degree murder advocate cannibalism eat shit filth are my politics filth is my life take whatever you like yes How's uh, this for a center spread? Uh, oh, yeah. <laughs> Traffic's bad, so we have to go straight to the theatre with these new diagrams of the end of time. While Brian deals with the singularity, I seek out a new song for the end credits, and I'm not going to tell you what it is, but it's a fantastic song. Tinkering with the universe takes longer than imagined, and we go all the way up to the 6pm deadline before it is dark stage. Going back to the hotel, there are revolving doors that appear to be bamboozling everyone. Brian never likes to see occupants of a hotel he's staying in failing an intelligence test, so it puts him in a bad mood, made worse by his keycard failing to work when he gets to the 25th floor. Our tour manager Lee takes everything in her stride, and he's soon experiencing his optimum 20-minute siesta, which assimilates his mind in time for stage time. The rooms hum loudly with the noises of surrounding rooftop air conditioning blades spinning, which gives them a soundtrack not dissimilar to a razor head. I do not look behind the radiator, but I know that in heaven everything is fine. The show is a little too long tonight and the hotel bar looked like it was going to be a little too touristy, so we stay backstage for an hour or so and drink a little and discuss the possibilities of what behaviour of the universe may not make the next cut when we perform in Manhattan. My Philadelphia books remain the Thurber Carnival and Elaine Brown's A Taste of Power. 
I learn a new poem from her childhood days of clapping games. Wild Bill Hickok was a peaceable man. He peed out of the window on a bald-headed man. He came down the steps with his dick in his hand and said, Hold it, motherfucker, I'm a peaceable man. Due to this day's schedule, I didn't get as far as I should into either book, so Philadelphia Reading Day is now being extended into A Sunday in Manhattan. And then the next New York book is Widow Basket. And that is the end of my first selection of Tour Diaries for the Horizons Tour. The Horizons Tour continues for the rest of the year. Got loads more dates in the USA, including Columbus, Indianapolis, Chicago, and then later on we're back up to Canada, Vancouver, Calgary, Edmonton, and then down to Sacramento and Portland, Seattle. So hopefully some of you might make it there. And then, of course, we're going to the UK and Ireland and Australia and New Zealand and Singapore and then eventually also to mainland Europe. My book, my latest book, The Importance of Being Interested, I think has just come out in paperback in the UK and possibly in Australia and New Zealand as well. So uh, I hope you might get that. That's uh, got an introduction or a forward by uh, Brian Cox. And thank you very much to everyone who supports us via Patreon. And, of course, also thank you to our brilliant producer, Trent Burton. This podcast is part of the Cosmic Shambles Network.